Hello and welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic. So if someone were to ask you what the most important teaching in the New Testament is, you might be tempted to respond, love of God and neighbor, but that would not quite be true. Here's the proper answer. The most important teaching in the New Testament is that the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is the Messiah. He's refounding the people of Israel. And as the Davidic Messiah, he is the king. That the visible sign of that kingdom is the church on earth. That it's linked to the church suffering in purgatory and the church in heaven. And the gospel today, which is about the Good Samaritan, is how it is that once you've entered that kingdom through your baptism, how it is that you look like a citizen of heaven. So let's turn now to the gospel in this episode of Oral Valley Catholic. The Good Samaritan is the gospel this weekend. I think everyone remembers the story. A man was beaten and left for dead by robbers. Um, a priest went by and ignored him. A Levite from the temple went by and ignored him. And who was it? It was the Samaritan man that stopped and took care of him. And so everybody remembers the story. But what does the story mean? And that's what this Oral Valley Catholic podcast is about this weekend. It's about the kingdom of God. We're in Luke chapter 10. And if you remember last week, it was the story of Jesus sending out 72 disciples. And if asked, why 72 disciples? Well, in Genesis 11, according to the Greek translation of the Septuagint, which Luke relied on, obviously, when he wrote the gospel, it said that Noah left four sons, and then out of those sons, he had 72 grandsons. And so when Jesus chooses 72 disciples, it's one for each of the grandsons of Noah. And since everybody was killed in the flood, those 72 grandsons, they're the source of every living human soul on the planet. So when you send out 72 disciples, well, you're sending them out to the whole world. But what are you going to say? Well, Jesus says, Tell them that the kingdom of God is at hand. Cure the sick. Cast out demons. And this is what they do. And though they return at the end of last week's gospel, and Jesus rejoices because he saw Satan fall like lightning from the sky. And then you go to the bottom of the gospel, and a lawyer, a teacher of the law, comes up to Jesus, and this is the question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And so the kingdom of God is about participating in this new restored people of Israel that isn't just about this world, but participates also in the kingdom of God, which is in heaven, the, what we call the communion of the saints. What must I do to inherit this life? So Jesus says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? So the lawyer replies, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. Jesus replied to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. And so it's about love of God. And since it follows right on the heels of the proclamation of the kingdom of God, this is how love fits into the gospel. If you want to be part of the new Israel, you have to learn those two basic rules. Love God, 
and love your neighbor. And then the lawyer says, because Luke says he wants to justify himself, who is my neighbor? And so Jesus then tells the story of the Good Samaritan as we understand it. And the priest walks by, the Levite walks by, but the Samaritan takes care of this poor man. So Jesus' answer, uh, actually question the teacher is, who was neighbor to this poor afflicted man? And the lawyer has to admit, it's the Samaritan. So why does Jesus hold up a Samaritan as the model of love of God and love of neighbor? Why doesn't he hold up a chief priest or a Levite or some humble Jewish man or woman? Let me tell you one of the important things to understand about the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke works on the relationship between those on the outside and those on the inside. The ones who think they've got it made don't have it made, and the ones on the outside might be the model for what faith looks like. So let's turn to the Gospel of Luke in general and see how this dynamic of the insider and the outsider works and how it connects with the philosophy of René Girard, one of the most prominent philosophers, literary crit critics, and uh, philosophers of history in the 20th century. Stay tuned. René Girard was born in 1923 and died in 2015. Um, He's a French polymath, a very talented man, a historian, a literary critic, and a philosopher of social science and philosophical anthropology. All said and done, he studies human beings, how human beings are, and he's been a very important figure in the 20th century. He was a devout Catholic man, and he talked about a theory of mimetics, and here's what mimetics means, is human beings are defined by their desires. And it's not that you desire an object because of its own goodness. You desire it because you have a model of someone who desires it. So we learn what we like by looking at what other people like. That's basically the idea of mimetics. And so since other people want the same things that we want, or vice versa, we want what other people want, this inevitably leads to clashes. And when it leads to a clash, historically, how people have dealt with clashes is through scapegoating. They find one person to blame the violence on. And once that one person has the sins of all the clash that comes out of these clashing desires, well, societal peace is, is, uh, is restored. And Girard goes through all these examples in literature throughout the ages and in the present time about about people wanting the same thing and clashing. Um, read the Twitterverse, where everybody wants to dominate the discussion, right? Everybody wants to be the moral authority in, uh, in America. And since they both want the same thing, that is, to be in control, there's a clash. So what happens? Somebody is scapegoated. And it goes back and forth, right? Because that's supposed to resolve the issue. You prove that Paula Deans are racist and you have triumphed over racism. I noticed Paula Deans back, at least she is in the checkout aisle down at Walgreens, although she was persona non grata for a while because of some racial indiscretion um, in her background. But the whole idea of mimetic desire is it's about groups. It's two groups against each other. There's an inside and an outside. 
And that is just a function of every human environment. And it also is how the Gospel of Luke is structured. So here's some examples. In the Gospel of Luke, he does more than any of the other evangelists, Matthew, Mark, um, or John, in talking about women. Women are outsiders in the male world. They certainly are in the first century. That's why Jesus taking women disciples is just so unusual, countercultural, right in the face of the dominant misogyny of the first century Jewish world, or the rest of the world for that matter. But in the gospel, Luke holds up a lot of examples of women that are exemplary as, as disciples of Jesus. How about Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, or Anna, the prophetess who speaks to Mary and Joseph when Jesus is presented for circumcision, or the widow of Nain, whose great faith is complemented by Jesus. Any number of women uh, are dealt with that way in the Gospel of Luke. There's the sinful woman in Luke who cries, watering Jesus' feet with her tears and drying them with her hair. There's the women who travel with Jesus and provide for his needs and the needs of the apostles. There's Martha and Mary, Mary who gets the better part right because she's a contemplative, listening to Jesus. There's the bent-over woman that touches Jesus and stands up straight. There's all these women in parables, like the old woman who loses a coin. Here are the statistics. The tale of the tape. Um, John has about eight stories about women. Mark and Matthew, something about the same. Uh, Luke has 18 stories, basically, that feature women in positive in positive roles. All four of them say it's the woman that finds the open tomb after Jesus' resurrection. But the key thing here about Luke is that outside group in Luke's gospel, they're the inside. Well, here's some other outsiders in Luke. How about the Romans? Everybody hates the Romans, the occupying power. But in chapter 23 of Luke, when Jesus is crucified, it's the Roman centurion that says, this man was innocent beyond doubt. He's a witness to the sacrificial nature of Jesus' dead, death on the cross. And he's a pagan Roman. There's tax collectors and public sinners. That mostly has to do with prostitutes. Um, and they are the ones that Jesus has dinner with. Jesus always holds up the faith of the outsider as the model. Now that's an interesting question, why? So let's turn to the to the question of the Samaritans as a role model for Jewish believers. Where did the Samaritans come from? In 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire under Tilgath Pilesneser, Pilesner, I think it is, uh, conquered Samaria and deported most of the people from the north. That's what we would think of as Galilee in the New Testament, but it was the land given to the northern 10 tribes. According to Assyrian records, uh, because the kings boast of their uh, conquest of Omri, who is the king of Israel at the time. Um, all these people are deported to east of the Tigris and Euphrates River in the Zagros Mountains, which run from southern Turkey uh, to uh, northern Iran, right through Iraq, and are basically lost to history. There are some stories of Jewish travelers in the 12th or 13th century that claimed that there were these Jewish tribes living in uh, that region of the Zagros Mountains, but there's been no other evidence of it, and it could be that there were just stories that were being made up. 
But the Samaritans at Mount Gerasim, um, these people came back and they had the same scriptures as the Jewish people, the Judaioi, but they understood them differently. And they wouldn't offer sacrifice at Jerusalem, which is the great offense, because David has set that up as the place where all people of, the, of, the, of Israel were to offer sacrifice. And so think about this enmity as a mimetic enmity, that both the Samaritans and the Jews claim to have the Mosaic law. Both the Samaritans and the Jews claim that they offer valid sacrifice. And both the Samaritans and Jews claim that the others are out of the covenant, that the other has violated the covenant. So Jesus is a Jew. How does he deal with the Samaritans? Think about how the Samaritans are treated as an outgroup in the Gospel of Luke. So if you remember, was it two weeks ago in chapter 9, James and John, the 12, are walking down the road with Jesus, and they are on the way to Jerusalem. They're trying to get lodging in the Samaritan town. They refused. So James and John, as staunch Jews, tell Jesus to call down lightning from the sky to destroy these godless Samaritans, and Jesus rebukes them. Then the following week, when Jesus sends out his 72 disciples, he doesn't tell them to destroy anybody, but he says if you go to a town and they won't accept you, just shake the dust of your feet off, uh, in test, off your feet in testimony against them. And it'll go easier for Sodom and Gomorrah, Jesus says, on the final day for the town uh, that rejected you. And so this nonviolent expression of the kingdom of God, Jesus only proposes. He does not impose. But here's another Samaritan reference in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 17. Do you remember there's 10 uh, lepers? And they say, Jesus, son of David, there's the messianic title. There's the reference to the kingdom of God. It's about a healing. Heal us. Uh, you know, we're lepers. And Jesus heals them. And he tells them to go and show themselves to the priest of the temple. And the 10 lepers take off to see the, the priest to be declared clean so they can once again reenter Jewish society. But one of them's a Samaritan. So why does he send Samaritans see the priest in Jerusalem? He doesn't accept that priest. It's because Jesus, as a Jew, is calling even the Samaritans to covenant fidelity. But what happens is the, the Samaritan cured leper peels off from the other nine, comes back and thanks Jesus. And so what does Jesus say to him? Jesus says, your faith has healed you because the Samaritans, like Gentiles, are not people of the book like Jews are people of the book. Salvation comes from the Jews, Scripture says. But how does salvation come um, to the leper, the Samaritan that's been healed? It's his great faith, Jesus says. It's his gratitude, giving uh, praise to God. So Samaritans are spared in the Gospel of Luke. Samaritans are held up as uh, faithful people that should be emulated because they give thanks to God. And now we come to the Samaritan uh, in the story in the gospel today. So set it up. Um, the Samaritans and the Jews have this mimetic rivalry. Both want to be faithful like Moses is faithful. 
So he's the model they both have in mind. But they take two different versions of Moses. And so like people closely related to the same scriptural base, they fight about it. You see it repeated over and over between the Sunni and the Shia and Islam, uh, amongst all the broken Christianities in our own uh, Christian experience. We can be harder on people who believe close to the same things that we believe than we are on complete unbelievers. Or even in our Catholic Union, this whole fight over Pope Francis, who's more Catholic, Pope Benedict or Pope Francis? This is all the mimetic clash that uh, Rene Girard is talking about because you're claiming your props as the right thinking Catholic. And once you understand that people are fighting over their desire to be known as the one that speaks the truth, it explains the clashes you see in the Twitterverse or on other social media, it can also explain clashes in, in your own family. Why? Because we both have this model, we all have this model in our mind about what fidelity looks like. It just doesn't mean the same thing to the other guy. That's why you fight. So here's the second part of Rene Girard's theory. He says, mimetic desire, everybody wanting the same thing, to be the true spokesman for Christianity or the true spokesman for the American way, whatever it's going to be, uh, or the true spokesman for the Mosaic Covenant, the Samaritans and the Jews. There will always be a clash. And so how is it resolved? Well, according to uh, Rene Girard, um, that's why scapegoat me mechanisms have been built into every human society. So to resolve the clash, there's always one innocent person who's chosen and sacrificed, and that brings um, peace to the community. So see how it works out. doesn't always reconcile uh, these groups fighting, but uh, what happens in the Twitterverse when you decide to make a victim of uh, a victim sacrifice of Paula Dean and take her business away, or cancel culture when you're going to show how you are so virtuous because you're going to single your virtue by destroying this other person. Um, you know, in the ancient world, it used to work when you would offer a bull or a goat, it would bring peace to the community. But we still have mimetic desires. Why doesn't sacrifice work in the modern world? What has changed? Here's what Jesus says. The quintessential outsider in the Gospel of Luke isn't the Samaritans, it's not women, it's not Ro Romans, it's not tax collectors, and it's not sinners. The quintessential outsider, the scapegoat, is Jesus. Do you remember what Caiaphas says? He says it in the Gospel of John better that one man dies and the nation not perish. He says it, it says it once in chapter uh, 8, I think it is, and uh, no, chapter 11, and then it's repeated at his trial that we're reminded by John that he had said better for one man to die. Because John is pointing out that Jesus' death is scapegoating, going back to the story in Exodus where the high priest is told to take a scapegoat and put onto it, press onto it, the sins of the people of Israel. 
Then it's to be led out into the desert was Azazel, abandoned to the demons. Another is to be sacrificed and sprinkled, the blood sprinkled on the people. So what happens in the story of Jesus' sacrifice according to Rene Girard? It's what changes history. And it's the answer to why goats and sheep used to be offered and resolved mimetic rivalries before Jesus, but not after Jesus. And the answer is, is because in Jesus, it's the first time in history when the victim becomes the hero. The victim is revealed as the Son of God. The victim's revealed as the source of healing. And then Christianity preaches that true Christians take their place with the victim. And so how do we get to an American culture where being a victim is powerful, being, uh, claiming your victim status is what gives you power, and then that allows you to victimize other people? It's the effect of Jesus on the culture changing how we think about victims. They became the one that everybody has to defend and to stand up for. Well, all right, that's a pretty perverse understanding of Christianity, but you can see the logic. Do you think the Romans cared about victimizing people? Heck no. The Greeks, nope. Jews stoned people to death and thought they were doing God's will, right? This is the ancient world. So why is it now that we stand on the path uh, on the side of people who are being victimized. Um, and then, well, I think of George Floyd. There's plenty of other examples, right? Um, then all the people standing up for George Floyd victimize, making more victims of others who feel victimized and once again lash back in this mimetic, toxic environment that there's no way out. Why? Because no one accepts that Jesus is the one scapegoating sacrifice for all. Because once you accept that, then you have to emulate the model of the scapegoat and you have to show mercy. Why does Jesus pick Samaritans as an example of the love of God? Because in the Samaritan is the image of Christ. It's his own image there, taking care of the fallen man by the road. St. Augustine says, that that fallen man, that's the church. That the Samaritan, that he's Christ. And he stopped to heal the wounds of these fallen people. And these other figures in the story, the, the priest and the Levite, this is the, the old covenant. The law in itself cannot cure. Accusations and falls cannot cure. It's not a criticism of the law of the Mosaic covenant that talks about the love of God and the love of neighbor because Jesus approves of that in the answer of the, of the teacher of the law, if you remember. It's the problem when the law becomes rules. Rules create nothing but the possibility for breaching the rule. And without mercy, there's no way out of this closed, toxic environment. So in America, where we claim to victim status and we blame others, there's always some point of justice there, right? But what makes hell, hell, and heaven, heaven? And hell, there's the possibility of mercy. Uh, I mean, there's no possibility of mercy. And heaven is mercy itself. Purgatory is about the possibility and reality of mercy. Difference between heaven and hell is mercy. So what's that say about America 
and all the ways that we victimize other people. Why don't we pull this together at the end as we reflect on Rene Girard and the story about the Good Samaritan. So remember Rene Girard's theory. He says, we never really want anything for its own sake. A saint probably wants God for its own sake, but mostly what we desire, we desire because somebody else likes it. And because the other person desires it, that's why we want it. That's why as little kids, you'd want the toy that your brother had. And it always caused clashes because you wanted the same thing. And so what do you have to do? You have to create a scapegoat. And so big brother blames little brother for claiming his rights. And this just goes on uh, throughout history. And to the extent that scapegoating can no longer resolve tensions, then we are in a position of permanent crisis in a culture that's post-Christian. And why has Jesus changed everything? Because he's made us side with the victim. But once we quit understanding the significance of Jesus' death on the cross, siding with the victim means you victimize other people because you have no way of making it equal without mercy. And so Jesus changes everything because he makes us love the victim. But when you only get half the picture, that you love the victim, but you don't love Jesus, then you don't really understand that he is the one and only sacrifice that resolves all cultural clash in a desire for mercy. Do you remember I was saying that in the Gospel of Luke, there's all these outsider insiders, and so this Rene Girard understanding of clashes caused by mimetic desire and the scapegoat, and we look at who the model of desire is, that uh, we want to be like the Samaritan because he's another Christ. And we talk about all the ways that the Samaritans are the outsiders in the Gospel of Luke. I remind you that the Acts of the Apostles is volume two of the Gospel of Luke. And in the Acts of the Apostles, there's one last reference to these outsiders, the Samaritans, that Luke tells us. So in chapter 8 of Acts of the Apostles, starting at verse 4, here's what it says. Now those who had been scattered, these are the apostles, went about preaching the word. Thus Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. Imagine going to the hometown of the Samaritans and talking about the Jewish Messiah. With one accord, the crowds paid attention to what was said by Philip when they heard it and saw the signs he was doing. Like Jesus, uh, cure the sick, cast out demons, proclaim the kingdom of God. This is the preaching plan. And then it says in verse 7, For unclean spirits crying out in a loud voice came out of many possessed people, and many paralyzed and crippled people were cured. There was great joy in the city. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who went down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For it had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit. Isn't that a great conclusion? Um, how Luke tells you about these outsiders, the Samaritans, 
and how it is they love and accept the gospel of Jesus. And so in that second reading from Colossians, St. Paul uh, has this hymn of praise that the early Christians uh, sang, probably sang, um, but I'll read it to you. I won't, I won't burden you with my voice. Christ Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him were created all things in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in, in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. and all things, he himself might be preeminent. For in him all fullness was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things for him, making peace by the blood of his cross. Through him, whether those on earth or those in heaven. So people ask, what's the most important teaching in the, Old, in the New Testament? You will say, the kingdom of God is at hand. And the kingdom of God is the church. And Jesus is the head of the church. And when someone says to you, I love Jesus, I just don't love his followers, I don't know, love the church. You ask, how can you say you love the king, but you don't love the kingdom? How do you say you respond to the king, but you want no part of his kingdom? There's something missing there. So what happens? Clashes. More mimetic desire that can't be resolved because you don't accept the cross and everybody's need for mercy. Once you do, then you look at the church in all of its glory and all of its fallenness, and it makes sense because you see it through the lens of Jesus Christ. He changes how we see women, Romans, tax collectors, public sinners, Samaritans, and our own fallen brothers and sisters in Christ. God bless you, and if you will, Give me a like on uh, whatever social media you listen to this podcast on. Till next time, farewell.